Tucker and I are inviting you to major in the minors with us for a few weeks as we explore some messages from, from the minor prophets, majoring in the minors, the prophets, that is. Uh, tonight, uh, the, the lesson is entitled, Locus, Locus Everywhere. Locus, Locus Everywhere. Uh, my dad grew up on a farm, and I've heard him through the years mention times when locusts were an issue on the farm, and perhaps some of you or some of your parents or grandparents uh, mentioned problems with an invasion of, of locusts. Well, that is a setting, a prominent setting in this book of Joel that, that we'll be studying tonight. So I invite you to open your Bibles or look up this text in, in the book of Joel. I want to give you an, an overview of the challenge of the study of the minor prophets, uh, just in case you wanted to know. Uh, on this chart that I found, it shows the, the minor prophets in their historical setting. And I'm waiting on the chart. If it were, oh, there it is. Uh, that's a lot of information, but let me highlight some things for you. And the challenge that it is for, for teachers and preachers, I think it's fundamental, it's fundamentally important, fundamentally important that we put a study of any book of the Bible in its historical context to understand what was going on at the time so we can understand that and then make application to today. I want to highlight these, these nations that were world powers during their day and the approximate times in which they were world powers. But you'll see as far as Israel, there was the time of first the United Kingdom but then the division of the kingdoms. And then there, there's a focus after Assyria took Israel, or Israel into captivity, then there's Judah alone. Judah would be carried into Babylonian captivity, uh, where they would serve for 70 years. And then there's the post-exilic time when Judah was brought back. That's a broad overview of several hundred years. But you'll see with these minor prophets, these 12 minor prophets, that they were prophesying during different time periods. And the, the challenge is that whereas we begin Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and so forth, those are not necessarily in chronological order. Um, we're going to approach Joel from this placement of early in the 900 uh, the 9th century B.C., along with Obadiah. But you can see other prophets prophesied before uh, the exile, when Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity. And then there are these three prophets that prophesy after they return back from, from exile. I don't know if you're a history student or not, but when it comes to understanding the scriptures, I think it's important for us to understand what is happening at the time. But I wanted to give you that broad overview to, know, and to be able to come back and refer to it to see, okay, when we're studying Jonah, what was, what was going on at the time? Who was in power? And, and that'll help us in understanding the historical context. So now, now let's focus on Joel, on Joel. First of all, let's ask who. Who was Joel? Well, Joel 1.1 begins with these words, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. 
And unfortunately, other than what we read about in the book of Joel, we don't know much more about him than that. There are about 12 different people named Joel in the scriptures, and there's no real reason as to identify or link this prophet Joel with any of the other 11. So he stands alone. We know little about him. His name, I, would, I wonder if Joel Cobb knows this, his name means Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. We can be reasonably certain that he was a native of Jerusalem and he is a prophet to the nation of Judah. The nation of Judah. When? When was the date of the writing of the book of Joel? Jack Lewis was one of my dad's teachers at Harding Graduate School. I've learned from my dad that uh, Jack Lewis was a, a scholar among members of the church. And so anything that Jack Lewis has written, I try to, have, try to grab a hold of and know that when I read him, I'm reading a really scholarly gentleman. But in his book on the Minor Prophets, he says the date of the book is uncertain. And that's frustrating when you're trying to put something in, it, in its historical context. Joel, I mean, Jack Lewis goes on to cite reasons why some believe Joel was written early date and, other, and reasons why some believe he, it was written much later, post-exilic time. And I'll share with you why I believe uh, the early date makes the most sense to me. I'll just state these just in case you wonder. The enemies of Israel are the Philistines, Phoenicians, Egyptians, and Edomites. And some of those, particularly the Philistines, that should take our minds back to the days of the United Kingdom, Saul, David, Solomon. And so that would tend to bring it back to an early date. There's no reference made in the book of Joel of Assyria and Babylon, which would be prominent uh, empires that impacted the nations of Israel and Judah. Amos, who undoubtedly wrote in the 8th century B.C., seems to quote Joel. Amos 1 verse 2, notice the similarity. I don't have them on the PowerPoint, but notice the similarity of the wording. Amos 1 2 says, he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Listen to Joel 3.16 and notice the similarity. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you can see remarkable similarity and it is believed that Amos may have actually been quoting Joel. So Joel will have been, will have been written before Amos. And its place assigned in the Hebrew Bible also shows the belief that the books were earlier uh, in time period. If that is the case, where and what was happening in this early time? That takes us to the reign of Joash. The reign of Joash. This is 830 B.C., and Homer Haley is a, uh, another scholar among members of the church that, that placed this date along with Joel. Well, let me tell you about Joash, or remind you about Joash. He was only seven years old when he became king of Judah. Seven years old. And the Bible tells us that Joash was one of the good kings of Judah. 
while Jehoiada the priest was alive. So Jehoiada the priest was his mentor, his advisor. And while Jehoiada was alive, the, the, king, the kingdom of Judah was doing well. When Jehoiada passed away, then Joash was influenced in the wrong direction and became an evil king of Judah. Here's some more background. Jehoshaphat was a righteous man, but he befriended Ahab, king of Israel. And when you hear the names Ahab and Jezebel, you think good or evil? Evil, right? So Jehoshaphat, the righteous king, befriended Ahab and was influenced. In fact, they had family members that intermarried. Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram married Ahab's daughter Athaliah. Athaliah, I know I'm giving you a lot of information, was the grandmother of Joash. And she had a lot of influence over Joash. So if Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah, the daughter took on many of the traits of, the, of her parents. And thus she was an influence on Joash itself, himself. What was that negative influence? Namely, idolatry. Athaliah, jo Joash's grandmother, ruled for six years before Joash became king. And she, like her mother Jezebel, actively supported jo Judah worshiping the false god Baal. So this time frame, again, Joash, a good king while Jehoiada was living, but then after he died... Athaliah and her influence uh, was more prominent. And thus, Judah was being led to worship uh, the false god Baal. So Joel is preaching during a time of political, social, religious, and economic turmoil. But then, locusts, locusts everywhere. Where does that come in? This was the occasion of Joel's writing. And this is prominent in the first two chapters of the book. He uses a locust plague as an object lesson. And even as God had warned in the old law that if, if his people turned against him, then he would send uh, plagues such as these against them as punishment. And apparently, not apparently, it is definite that this locust plague was sent by God to punish Judah for their rebellion against him. It was a plague of locusts, the first few, few verses of Joel 1 tell us, that was unparalleled. It was such that those who had, who had lived previous to it had not seen it, anything like it, and that it would be spoken about for generations to come. And this, if you think about an agrarian society, this was one of the greatest fears of that kind of society, uh, of far, farming society. It, for its immediate effects, uh, locusts would eat up everything. Crops then would be no more. Uh, fruit trees would be no more. We'll see some of that language in just a moment. But then there were future effects as well. Biblical Hebrew has 12 terms for various variety of locusts. Four of those are mentioned in Joel. And I want to note this passage with you. Joel 1 verse 4. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, 
the crawling lo locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. And from that language, you see these, this plague of locusts was devastating in its effects. But it's God's judgment upon his people. And we'll see that as we read on. In fact, notice with me, I want to read with you some more from chapter 1. And this is very descriptive language and picturesque language of the locust plague on, on the people of Judah during this time. Verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and he has the fang, fangs of a fierce lion. And this is poetic imagery, language, but what he's talking about is this plague of locusts. Verse 7, he has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. And why is that? Because the effects of, this lo of these locusts is that there, there's no grain for a grain offering. It has impacted even the worship of God. The field is wasted, the land mourns, the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Verse 11, be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, also the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. And that may be foreign to us, with a, possibly a few exceptions who have ever witnessed anything like this, but this would be devastating to that society. And so those locusts have eaten up everything, no crops, nothing with which to offer offerings to, to God. The, the people suffer, the animals suffer. There's no joy in the land. In light of this locust plague, Joel has this message. Verse 14, Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Similar to the people of Israel in Egyptian bondage. It became so intense, uh, so hard, that they cried out to God, and God delivered them from it. So Joel is saying to the people of Judah, call a, fast before God, call the sacred assembly, cry out to the Lord that he'll deliver you from this plague of locusts. Verse 15, I want to notice a key phrase with you. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? I wanted to highlight the phrase, the day of the Lord. It occurs five times in this book. It's a day of judgment from God. And Joel announces that this plague of locusts is, is a judgment from God upon the land. In chapter 2, he continues his discussion. In verse 11, he says, For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it? So in its immediate context, the day of the Lord has to do with that locust plague. 
There would be other days of the Lord to come. And that is other judgments from God upon the nations. Not just upon Judah and Israel, but upon nations around them. Particularly those nations that had oppressed Judah and Israel. And ultimately will come the final day of the Lord. Which we recently uh, studied in 2 Peter 3 verse 10. You remember this text? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and both the works, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That's the ultimate, the final day of the Lord. But Joel uses that phrase, the day of the Lord, as a judgment from God upon Judah. And Joel's message is, in light of that, repent, turn back to God. And we'll see that in just a moment. Let's go back to Joel 1, other effects of the locust plague. The seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down. The grain has withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O oh Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. If you've ever spent time in a desert area, you get a glimpse of what he's talking about. But imagine lush fields becoming just wiped out. And it's desert-like conditions. The closest thing I can relate it to is West Texas, which is desert-like. Where sandstorms are a reality. And with nothing to hold down the soil, the wind drives it. Imagine just, in, in this humidity, it's hard to imagine. But imagine a place where everything is so dry. No water, no humidity, and no plants. And the animals and the people are suffering. That is what is going on in the time of Joel. In chapter 2, he continues to use descriptive language about this locust plague. Using imagery of war horses rumbling like chariots. Like an army marching on its way. And again, the message of, of what is happening to Judah... Here's God's message through Joel. Repent. And watch the way that he says it. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. In fact, verse 14, who knows, Joel says, if he, God, will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So in in the midst of this devastation, of this plague of locusts, Joel is crying out, turn back to God, repent. And if you will, he'll relent. In fact, he goes on in chapter 2 with language like this. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. 
You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Again, in the midst of this devastation, he's saying turn back to God and God will bless you once again. So all of Joel's preaching is done in the shadow of this locust plague. So what's the message of the book of Joel? We've been all over that. But this book has three major sections. The first one is about this locust plague and, and the drought and, that came as a result. And this call to repentance of the people of Judah. Then there's a section about the day of the Lord a future day of the Lord heralded by the outpouring of the Spirit. And then finally, the, there's a discussion about the glorious future of Judah and Jerusalem. So as we see in the latter part of the book of Joel, Joel looks ahead. When we think of a prophet, we think of many times of foretelling, of looking ahead. And that's exactly what Joel does. Notice with me Joel 2, verse 28, as he looks forward. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. I hope that sounds familiar to you. Because let me read the rest of this, but not in the book of Joel. I want to read to you this prophecy as Peter says it's being fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost. Let's go back to verse, let's go to verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. You'll remember that the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and they began to speak in other tongues, other languages. And you have these other, uh, I, I, my understanding is you have different apostles speaking different languages. It was miraculous because they'd never studied them before. And people hearing the foreign language with which they're not familiar, they might say, well, he's drunk. What's happening there? He's drunk. Peter says, no, they're not drunk. But this is a fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said many years ago. In fact, verse 16, this is what happened. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes verses 28 through 30, uh, 31 of Joel 2. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And all my men servants and all my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you see, Peter, guided by the Spirit, is saying, you remember 
and they'd be familiar with what Joel said, what he prophesied. What, is, what you see happening today is what Joel prophesied, presumably in the 9th century B.C. Hundreds of years before, it's now being realized. God is pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. And notice that last statement. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that day, you'll remember, about 3,000 people called on the name of the Lord by heeding Peter's message to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. About 3,000 souls responded in obedience to the gospel and fulfilled what Joel had prophesied many, many years before. Then you come to the end, Joel chapter 3, and I'm just going to make passing reference Joel continues to look ahead, and he's looking ahead to a time when God will judge all nations. Perhaps part of Joel's fulfillment of that prophecy would be when the nations of Assyria, the nations of Babylon, those world empires would be judged according to, like Daniel's prophecy. But also looking way ahead to the ultimate day of the Lord, which is yet to come. But also... Joel looks ahead to a time when God would bless his people. Perhaps that was a, a reference to the fulfillment. Again, if we take the early date, and this is before Judah's taken off into Babylonian captivity and before they're brought back, Joel is looking ahead to that time when God would bless his people once again. The temple would be rebuilt after being destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah would be rebuilt. And so forth. But I can't help but see also, just as Joel 2 being fulfilled in Acts 2, that Joel is looking to the Christian age and the spiritual blessings that would come upon the people of God, the new Israel. That's my best attempt as an, over, as an overview of Joel in its historical setting. So what does that mean to you and to me today? I just want to highlight one thing that impressed me uh, by way of personal application for you and for me today. And it comes to Joel's message in light of, that, of the day of the Lord, the day that God was punishing Judah for their sin with this plague of locusts. And you remember the message that Joel gave. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. I want to highlight that phrase, rend your heart, not your garments. I know you're familiar with that idea as it's prominent in Scripture that is a sign of true penitence or remorse, people would tear their clothing as an outward show of, of, their, of their penitence. But Joel's message is, it's not tearing your garments that's important. It's rending your heart. So 
it, your repentance must go deeper than just tearing your clothing. Your repentance must go to your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. And what that took me to was phrases in the New Testament or from Matthew to Revelation where instruction is given and it's related to our hearts. Let me give you, remind you of a few examples. We're to forgive from the heart, Matthew 18, 35. We're to love God from the heart, Matthew 22. We're to believe from the heart, Acts 8, 37, Romans 10, 9 and 10. We're to obey from the heart, Romans uh, 6, verse 17. We're to give from the heart, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 17. We're to sing from the heart, Ephesians 5, 19. We're to serve from the heart, Ephesians 6, 5 and 6. We're to love others, love one another fervently with a pure heart, 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. And the message is, God wants us to obey Him, yes indeed, but obey Him from the heart. Not an outward display, but genuinely from, from within, from, from our hearts. You see, God's message through Joel is repent from the heart, rend your hearts, and not your garments. May that be a major lesson for us from a minor prophet. Rend your hearts, not your garments. If tonight you're subject to the invitation of Christ, even Joel was uh, making prophecy concerning things that would occur, that would happen in the Christian age. And it's the age that, that the Old Testament is pointing to. To when Christ would come and die for our sins and people would, would hear the gospel and respond and be saved and could look forward now with hope for an eternal home in heaven. And the Old Testament prophets are pointing in this direction to blessings that you and I can and do enjoy even today if we're in Christ. And if you're ready to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ or if you need the prayers of the church tonight, uh, we invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.